1: Welcome everybody to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell and we're recording this a few hours after the USA's 1-1 to draw loss with Canada and World Cup qualifying. (laughs) Here with me to break down what the US didn't do, what Canada did, and what happens next is a man who watched this game twice and is therefore, I believe by definition, a masochist. Joe Lowry, thanks for being here. Are you having a good night? How's it going, buddy? I'm having a I'm having a fine night. Uh, I am blessed to be able to
2: do this with you, Taylor. I, yeah. I just wanted to give you props for how well you slid in draw loss. That caught me off I mean, guard. It is but it's is is. very, very true. Yep.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and Joe, is this like not to go Too negative too quickly, but is this the most sort of, like, disappointing result for you when you've been covering the national team for this show? Because I do wonder if this is your first opportunity to, after a very bad result, really break this down and sort of try to, like, process your thoughts in a pretty rapid-fire manner.
2: Yeah, wow. I I think... I remember you and Daryl doing the loss to Canada in Toronto. Mm -hmm. And that was in Nations League, right? And that was before the one where the US came back and won in Orlando. And that, that was bad. I wrote about that game, but I did not come on the show to talk about that game. I think this is the most disappointing result that I've been able to come on here and talk about, which is, I don't know, interesting in its own way, I guess.
1: It, yeah, and it's it's probably <laughs> the most disappointing d- disappointed I have been in the United States since Cuba and the failure to qualify. I wouldn't say it's on that level cuz obviously that sure. was much much more at stake yeah. and much much more of a sense of loss and a sense of confusion, but there are similarities after this result and I don't think we'll get into it later on. I'm not fire burhalter. I am not everything that we've been working towards is a failure, but I do see similarities in it seemed like we were working towards something it seemed like it was going to click it seemed like we had a lot of answers and at the end of this one i find myself more confused than i was heading into it which i didn't Mm. think was necessarily possible and i want to (laughs) start i guess with that in mind by saying that i did fully expect the u.s win tonight and and that was not born of arrogance or oh it's canada at home no big deal it's that i thought following A fairly uninspiring draw, but not a disastrous draw against El Salvador that we would see the U.S. kind of get that confidence back. Okay, we played a game we understand, but we've played lots of games before we can do this. And I thought they'd look more organized, more cohesive, just fresher, more exuberant. Uh, and I think that's maybe influencing my frustration about this game. So, Joe, before we get into that frustration and this result, what were your expectations? Like, were you sort of less optimistic? Did you have less grandiose ideas heading into this game? So, I did with
2: this game what I do with most movies that I go and see and just try to enter with absolutely no expectations because mm-hmm. then I find that it's harder for me to be disappointed. That's just kind of how it works. I didn't have a lot of defined thoughts or hopes for how this game would go, partially because Canada's a good team and, and they're better than they've been, certainly in the past, probably they're better than they've ever been right now. So that's a whole you know separate thing. And then also, we just didn't see the U.S. look very good against El Salvador. And so coming home and playing in the U.S. and playing on a better field and in more familiar circumstances in a lot of ways, I think that obviously was in the U.S.'s favor. But I didn't know how this was going to go because... The U.S. didn't convince anyone in that El Salvador game, and and to be honest, it hadn't been particularly convincing in either of the finals that they beat Mexico in earlier this summer. They tried really hard, and they got good results in those games, but they hadn't been dominant, and they hadn't really been dominant in the Gold Cup either. So it, it hasn't been a long string of really convincing performances, and that's another reason why I didn't allow myself to really make a lot of defined expectations for this game
1: yeah and, and maybe that 's part of it for me is that even in that in the run of success this summer that i 'm not trying to discredit, but I will say i i don 't remember as many games where it was just the u s from start to finish dominating both possession but also chance creation and and getting a bunch of clear cut opportunities and scoring a bunch of goals. That has, it's not as though that has been the case. And so, up against Canada, they just completely sat deep. They never stepped out. The United States had chances, but just couldn't take them. Goalkeeper stood on his head and it finished nil nil or one to one. In this case, I would argue Canada by full time had better chances. And at one point, I really thought Buchanan with that one that went just wide, I thought that was two to one. And it felt like this was going to be a loss. And that is with them having played more defensive. And I know Brendan Aronson in his post-match comments talked about how like they made no, there was no focus. They didn't want to play. They sat back and defended. And I think my response to that was like, yeah, and like of course they're gonna do that. They're gonna sit <laughs> in a back five. You and I talked about that, Joe. They're gonna be more defensive. They're gonna try to block like anything you're doing through the middle, but still have coverage out wide. And it's a new entity for the United States that there's that expectation that you have to break down this this blocked team but you have all of this talent able to do so and i think u.s teams of the past had a little more of that fight they were more reliant on just getting into those scraps and finding a way to make something happen and there's still some of that spirit here but i didn't see that next level evolution of how are we going to attack teams that are being defensive how are we going to cause them problems it felt like we're going to try some 1v1 stuff and we're going to be, be pretty direct and aside from that Vibes like a triple substitution with ten minutes to go. I I didn't see much in the way of attacking improvisation or creativity tonight, Joe.
2: No, other than Christian Pulisic and a couple runs mm. from Serginho Dest on the right side, there wasn't a lot of that. And and you can look at the personnel in the lineup and kind of intuit that without even having watched the game. When Sebastian Ynaty and Cal Costa are those two number eights in front of Tyler Adams in midfield. There's not a lot of creativity there. Brendan Aronson still hasn't really taken that next step. And and maybe it's not time for him to do that. He's still a very young player. But he hasn't taken that next step of responsibility with the national team either. So a lot of it, in the attack at least, did rest on Christian Pulisic's shoulders. And I thought, to be fair to him, he was brilliant tonight. I thought he was really, really good. He was getting on the ball. He was driving forward. At least when he got on the ball, he was excellent. He was willing to try things in a way that a lot of other U.S. players aren't willing to try things. So that, that was a big problem for the U.S. is the lack of willingness to actually be aggressive and take risks. In, in a way, though, I can understand that because it is Canada and they have Alfonso Davies ready to run right mm-hmm. at you. And he is the best player in CONCACAF by a large margin, in my opinion, at least. I know there's others that could be up there. So the the U.S.'s lack of, of risk-taking in this game, I think, really hurt them. And the fact that they just didn't appear to have a cohesive possession setup. And I'm sure we'll dig into yep. this more a little bit later. But we've texted a little bit back and forth about this. There wasn't a a real way to break through Canada who defended really well and really compactly, Mm -hmm. but teams get broken down. Like that's how Manchester city wins soccer games. And the U S obviously is very far away from being Manchester city or from being Spain. But I mean, you want to see some consistent way of breaking through a low block and the U S didn't really have that tonight.
1: Yeah. And, and obviously you don't want that to be the same approach every single time, but the more variety you have, the more, basically like gaps in the dam that Canada have to plug as quickly as they can, the more vulnerability there is elsewhere to attack. And I think that is a thing that we would have liked to have seen from the United States. So let's talk about why we didn't, Joe. Let's start with the lineups and approach. First for the USA, two things to remember. One, they were without Gio Reyna, who was injured. They're also without Zach Steffen uh, for a positive COVID test. He will be out for the Honduras game as well. But the unexpected news was the absence of Weston McKinney, who confirmed on Instagram that he broke COVID protocol. That was why he was suspended. Would he have made the difference? There's no way to know for sure. Tyler Adams in the post-match interview said that uh, he didn't think that it made that big of a difference, that they knew and they were prepared for it. My opinion there is that that's him being a good teammate and friend. Uh, but fundamentally, we didn't need that disruption. Um, And I think... There is an argument that, like, a lot of this loss is on Weston McKinney. And even though he's not involved, I don't want this to be a, like, well, what we learned tonight was that that midfield needs Weston. I think what we learned tonight is that we need him to grow up. And this is the second time now, uh, once at national team level, once for Juve, that he has broken COVID protocol. The last time that meant he, uh, got a positive test that he got, got COVID and doesn't seem like he's learned that lesson. And he's young, players make mistakes, but, I have to believe that Weston McKinney is is an important part of this team, and you need him there. You need that veteran leadership. You need that fight and that spirit and that belief, and other players might be able to fill that role or step in as needed. But I think we've come to believe that Weston McKinney is a very important part of this squad, and for him to be absent should not be sort of like cast aside because everything else went wrong as well
2: no i i totally agree taylor weston mckinney missing this game for this reason is unacceptable and that yep. behavior is it's not okay right it's putting others at risk and that's the worst part here we don't know what actually happened but mm-hmm. it's pretty easy to understand that from breaking covid protocol so that's that's a problem i i really don't think that weston mckinney would have helped all that much in this game he's not going to really help you break down a low block that's but i mean it fair. would have been nice to have him uh, i think gio Reyna mm-hmm. is the, absolutely the biggest loss yep. him and christian Pulisic both operating in tight spaces and having chances to try to play hero ball between the two of them. I think having two heroes is a lot better than having one. I think that was Marvel's whole plot for the Avengers or how you know how they got there. But I, I think Giorena missing Giorena is huge. Mm-hmm. The rest of the lineup, Taylor, if you'll allow me to run through it. Uh, Matt Turner Please. in goal, Serginio Dest at right back, Miles Robinson and John Brooks as the two center backs, Anthony Robinson at left back, Tyler Adams at the six, Acosta and Legette as the eights. Uh, you have Brendan Aronson on the right, Christian Pulisic on the left, and Jordan Pefock as the nine. I thought this was about the best lineup that the U.S. could put out there the players that they had for this game DeAndre Edlin has to come on for Sergio Dest before halftime after Dest has I believe a sprained ankle shoot I can't remember what it was um, it was, yeah, had, had to come off with an injury perfect so mm-hmm. I mean it was a lineup that I thought would be good enough to get it done and, and they almost did get it done with that Brendan Aaronson goal in the second half but obviously we know how this story ended
1: Yes. So we'll talk about the goals for sure. I am with you that I I saw that lineup. I thought it made a lot of sense. The only questions I had were if it was Legette central or out wide, uh, mostly because that would mean that Aronson got another another opportunity central that felt very unlikely. And then if it was Aronson on the left or Pulisic on the left. But aside from those little wrinkles, a lot, a lot of the lineup kind of like basically made itself clear. I wouldn't say selected itself, Joe, because we both talked about in our preview that this felt like an ideal opportunity for the United States to go with the back three both because of some of the vulnerabilities we saw against El Salvador, but also because we assumed that's what Canada would do. You can match their shape and then try to create some instability. Instead, it felt like the U.S. kind of stuck with what we've seen them do in the past, and it ended up being more of a 4-3-2-1 of sorts in my mind when they were attacking, with with Aronson and Pulisic going pretty central underneath PFOC. And I, I really do think that that shape and the way the United States wanted to attack doubly played into Canada's overall game plan pretty perfectly and is a huge reason why, from the outset, the United States wasn't really able to create that much but did have a ton of possession.
2: Okay, so unpack that a little bit more Mm -hmm. because I I don't think I agree, but I want to hear more about what you think some of the tactical issues were in this game for the U.S.
1: men's national team. So when you have that narrow sort of attack, when it is Aronson and Pulisic central, and I'm glad that you might not agree because I think disagreement means that we see different things and maybe we can find some truth somewhere in there. But I think when you have those two more central, the idea is to then leave space down the channels for, let's say on the right side, for Serginho Dest. Or maybe it's it's another sort of like it's Kellen Acosta sliding out there because now there's space open. but. I think what ended up happening was that because you have those attackers more narrow, Canada in a back three, if you have Fox Central and Pulisic and Aronson on either side of him, you your back three is now marked up, and that could be a vulnerability. But when the United States is trying to play in those kind of direct balls from midfield, you don't have to track anybody more than that's my mark and I'm sticking with them. There's not a lot of fluidity, and you're not creating those moments where the left center back is... Tracking somebody or is marking somebody, but then also has to get out wide to deal with the fullback. Instead, because it's three uh, v three, backline versus frontline that lets the wingbacks for Canada go out and and basically negate or at least in a one v one way threaten uh, the United States fullbacks. And there's always that risk of if the, the fullbacks get caught too far forward, as happened a couple times in the second half. Then there's a ton of o- opportunity to exploit. And going away from that, even. Then, so that means that basically your two wide attackers are now completely nullified by the wing backs. Your front three are marked up by their back three. And that leaves a 4v3 in the center of midfield in a favor of Canada, which I think is another reason why we didn't see a ton of possession for the United States or at least meaningful attacking possession from the United States Central because they were outnumbered. And that's before Kyle Larin dropped in. And so the United States effectively had a lot of possession. But Canada, because of that, those sort of mismatches and overloads on certain sides. Besides, never seemed to have to get out of like second gear even to defend. It seemed like they were pretty comfortable for most of the first half. So I think Matt Doyle tweeted, the uh, the U.S. finished the first half with 77% of possession, outshot Canada 5-0 over the final 30 minutes. Canada outshot the U.S., I think, 3-0 in the opening 15. But the United States with that level of possession, but that few clear-cut opportunities, I think, was a pretty big red flag for me. So that's my argument there, Joe. Consider it unpacked.
2: Okay. I, I like it. I don't, well, I don't like what was inside of the, the yeah. argument, I guess, but I, I, it's not, it's not a nice pill to swallow, but I agree with, I think everything Taylor, the, the root of the problem as I see it maybe is less to do with the shape and more to do with how the shape was executed. Right. Okay. I'm not sure that yeah, That's switching totally if he was fixed. a to totally a three fixed. at the back yeah. shape, yeah. it it'd have any effect. Because I mean the shapes are so fluid, right? Or at least they're supposed to be. And we did see some fluidity with how the US started. In the early stages of this game, the first five minutes, even it was Sebastian Lajet and Acosta dropping into the fullback spots and Destin Robinson pushing really high. And then later on in the game, not, not too long after that, it was those two eights a little bit higher, now between the lines and the fullbacks, maybe a little bit deeper. So we were seeing some adjustments. The problem, though, for the U.S. is I just think they were way too static in those important areas and made it way too easy for Canada to mark them up, to overload the midfield defensively and have that numbers advantage in those central spaces. And so that made life really hard for the U.S. I mean, how are you going to break through a low block when you're not really moving a whole lot? There's a there's a sequence of possession for the U.S. where they get the ball in about 440 on the game clock. So four minutes and 40 seconds into this game, they have the ball for about 90 seconds, a minute and a half, all the way to 610 on the game clock. And they do about nothing with the ball. They move it back and forth from side to side. There's very little movement in between the lines. I think that's this This is the sequence when Christian Pulisic drops really deep, like to give John Brooks a hug kind of deep. And he gets the ball and then drives forward, and then nothing happens. Sebastian Legette tries to rotate and fill that spot. Doesn't work. They recycle it back the other way. And that sequence ends. That 90-second sequence ends with a hopeful long ball from John Brooks into the box. And that was a theme from this game, in my view at least. Maybe not the long ball directly into the box, but a diagonal ball from either John Brooks or Miles Robinson or Tyler Adams. Most often it was John Brooks, but the U.S. was way too reliant on those chipped, balls out from the back in this game not not even like the back of the us's own half but just the back of their possession the possession shape in Canada's half it happens in the third minute it happens in the 67th it happens over and I have two examples I'm not going to read them out because I've been talking for a long time but it happens so much and those would have been way more effective if Brendan Aronson and Christian Pulisic had gotten more involved and been more active off the ball in the in the front line because if they're dragging Canada's wingbacks inside or pushing them deeper, then you can play those chip balls out to Robinson or out to Yedlin or to Dest. But the U.S. weren't moving and they were way too static and that made their one game plan, the one identifiable offensive approach, those long diagonals, it made them pretty much
1: ineffective from start to finish. Uh, Joe, I I I agree with everything you've just said there, and I want to continue to break down what the United States were trying to do, why they were trying to do it, and maybe why it wasn't working. But I also think I might need a break just to, to clear my head. <laughs> so we're going to take a quick break. We will be back with more analysis of the USA's 1-1 draw.
0: This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to com slash courtside to learn more.
1: This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. All right, Joe Lowry, we are back. Let's keep going with that last point you were making, which was some of the long ball, specifically the long ball from the center backs at wide. And there were some direct ones towards uh, PFOC. And I think the thing that I noticed was that th- it seemed to be a like, okay, I think that's on. I'm going to go for it. I didn't see a ton of we're crowding everybody to one side and then we're leaving the weak side with like one player there. Canada's going to like send numbers all the way over to the side where we've got our numbers. Then we can hit that big switch and now it's on. A lot of the time it felt like, uh, I'm just going to try that and hope it comes off. And that was, that started from kickoff where the United States drop it back as we see teams do all the time. They drop it back, four or five runners go straight forward, long ball, and then the United States loses it to 50-50, Canada pick it up, Kyle Laren draws a foul, and When I rewatched, that just felt like such a significant moment of like literally from kickoff, we tried to go over the top direct but into a mass of Canadian defenders who won the 50-50 and then had numbers around to create something off of it. I I don't think there was much deliberateness deliberateness to that kind of long ball, that directness of play aside from – yeah, sure. Let's see if we can catch him, or maybe there was an expectation that we could do that when Canada were in transition. Joe, why did you feel like the United States prioritized that to such degree? I don't know, Taylor. <laughs> the, the, I can think of a few theories. That's a fair answer, here, right? Man.
2: That is a fair answer. My first theory is. You're afraid of coughing up the ball in a central position to mm, then give Canada, maybe give Astacchio or Mark Anthony Kay time to run forward, pick up their head, and spray a ball out wide to Junior Hoilet or to Alfonso Davies on the wings for Canada or T. John B. in the second half. So maybe oh. you just don't want to turn the ball over there. But yeah. I mean, I, I that doesn't that doesn't fully explain it though, right? Because those are such high-value attacking areas. The fact that the U.S. was almost that they almost completely avoided those areas it's not even like they were not interested in taking the risk sometimes it was like they were never interested in taking the risk and and to me in a in a game that a lot of us were labeling as a must-win game that's that's way too risk averse like that doesn't even make sense to me to go fully in that direction so maybe that could be partly true the other part is I, i just don't think the u.s had the spacing right in between the lines. So part of it was, I think the long diagonals were intentional to an extent, but I think some of them were forced as well, where the rotations were too slow to get in between the lines, or there were a number of moments when Sebastian and Jett and Brendan Aronson were on top of each other, or Calen Acosta and Brendan Aronson were on top of each other, which is, concerning, right? When your coach has been in in charge for three years now, almost three full years now, you think that the players would have the better idea, have a better idea of how to space themselves in possession, but it was sloppy off the ball. And I think because some of those options between the lines weren't there, PFAC wasn't dropping. I think because those options weren't there, the U.S. did revert back to that diagonal. And when Canada's in a back five for 90% of this game, there's not a lot of room out wide if you're not moving the defense around,
1: which you've kind of already talked about. I would like to revisit the issue of spacing between the lines, but the reason why I got very excited with your explanation, Joe, is because it does make a lot of sense in terms of it being occasionally deliberate, occasionally part of the tactics, but a large part of it being not wanting to lose the ball to Canada's press when it was uh, in operation in threatening positions. And I I do think that sometimes with John Brooks, there was a, yeah, I'm going to go for this ball. I'm going to try to hit this, hit this diagonal. And, and there was a, maybe it's on, maybe something comes of it, but also, I wouldn't be surprised if it was we're playing this kind of bunkered team who maybe bunkered is is not kind enough because I don't want to downplay the tactics here. But if you're trying to get Canada to sort of step out, if it's like checkers and you need your opponent to move the back line to some extent, like lumping a ball in and giving Canada possession in an area of the field that isn't necessarily threatening potentially invites them to commit numbers to a counterattack that maybe isn't exactly on, but if you can win the ball back off of them, the idea being that you're sort of you're most vulnerable when you have given up the ball on a counterattack because your players are in spots that are not familiar to them when they have to do their defensive job. Maybe then you can break on them out wide or through the middle and then you can find those chances. Again, that's a charitable read, but I wouldn't be surprised if that is at least Some of what the idea was, but I think you're also right that a larger part was that they didn't have the options central or when they did, they were too slow to get into those spaces. And by then the passing lanes were cut off. But Joe, let's talk some more about the U.S.'s spacing and why they didn't have numbers where they needed them.
2: Well, why is a bit of a tricky one to answer because (laughs) it doesn't feel like rocket science to put players between the lines. But, I mean, Mm -hmm. there there were a number of moments, and I tweeted one of them. I tweeted, honestly, having players between the lines is for chumps because it looked like that was the U.S.'s mentality in this game. There's a moment in the 11th minute where Tyler Adams gets on the ball on the right side and plays a long diagonal over to the left wing not least because there's just no one between the lines. Like There's no one in that space in front of him or near him vertically for him to play that ball to. No one's checking, no one's showing, no one's tucking inside. It's just not happening. And Taylor, I sent you a a still image from my rewatch of John Brooks on the ball in the second half in a very similar situation. He's on the ball, and he ends up playing this long, long diagonal over to the right side because – maybe his mind was made up. Maybe it wasn't. I'm not a mind reader. But at least partially it seems to me because there's no one in between the lines. Kellen Acosta is maybe stepping forward to get into that space. Christian Polisic's too high and too wide. Jord, uh, Jordan Pifak is not dropping. I mean it, it was happening over and over and over again to the point where it really does make me think the U.S. was trying to avoid that space and that just makes no sense to me. And so then I'm just trapped in this loop of a lack of logic and I'm I'm sputtering out, Taylor. I'm sputtering, man.
1: Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I will take us... I will pick it up from there, but I will take us in a different direction to say that the the thing that I then saw was when you do end up going direct, when you do end up sort of trying to go for those long balls pretty consistently, uh, from my experience, when your team starts doing that, if you're a, a wide player or a player who has to get forward but then get back, you start to get annoyed, especially when you're tired, and so... If you know that, like, if I sprint 40 yards and we hit a long ball and it doesn't come off, now I have to sprint 70 yards back, maybe I'm not going to make as many runs. Maybe I'm not going to show as much. But also if it just becomes part of what you're doing, then the United States, when they're launching these long balls, they tend to do it from a little bit deeper each time with the front line that is pushed higher up, but there's those bigger gaps in the middle, Joe. And the reason why I'm kind of explaining it this way is because to look at Canada's equalizer, to look at their goal... When the United States clear the ball, Canada reestablished possession, I think, 30 yards inside their own half. And it takes about five seconds for the ball to find Tejan Buchanan out wide on the left at midfield. And then it's uh, Buchanan who plays in Alfonso Davies. Away we go. But in those five seconds from when the United States cleared the front line, the front three is able to step above midfield. The midfield steps to about midfield. But the defense stays probably 30 yards in their own half. And as you start to do that long ball, that direct sort of play, your team is going to get stretched and stretched and wider and stretched and wider. And then suddenly there are big gaps. And in a very not ideal scenario, you're leaving their best player, as Joe said, probably the best player in CONCACAF, I think the best player in CONCACAF, uh, 1v1 versus DeAndre Yedlin, and I'm not trying to be disrespectful to DeAndre Yedlin, to some extent Alfonso Davies already did that for me, uh, but (laughs) that's not a great matchup, and he doesn't have good positioning, and the U.S. backline is a little bit erratic, Miles Robinson is maybe a yard too deep, but I'm not putting this on him, I think there's many other vulnerabilities and mistakes along the way, including John Brooks not really tracking Kyle Larin, who's then wide open for the tap-in. But it seemed like the United States, in trying to force things, essentially opened themselves up to being too wide open and letting Canada attack.
2: Absolutely. I mean, when you push so many numbers forward, it's going to be inevitable, in in a, in a way, at least. And when the U.S. even was back on that goal sequence, on Canada's goal, they're in that 4-3-3 shape, and they're trying to be aggressive, and they're trying to put pressure on the ball. They're not getting back into a compact 4-5-1. That's not something that Berhalter really does a whole lot. They're trying to then still push forward, but that leaves a bunch of space out wide. Sebastian Legette can't pressure the ball fast enough, and he was probably never going to get there in time. I don't really think that's his fault. And then the, the sequence of events that you described happens. And the U.S. didn't have a lot of those moments where they could take advantage of a Stretched defense, which credit to Canada, they executed their game plan really well and they made life hard for the US over and over and over again. I do think it's telling, Taylor, that the US's goal sequence and, and a lot of their other best attacking moments, I thought, well, at least some of them, came in moments where Canada was stretched. Came in transition or came even from a hopeful cross. Like, like a few of the chances at the end of the first half of the U.S. came from Anthony Robinson's cross, crossing over the, on that left side, long hopeful balls in from the left side into PFOC or in into that area for him to occupy center backs. And then the goal, like I mentioned, it comes in transition. Aronson pressures, uh, Scott Kennedy. And then a whole bunch of things happen from there. We can describe it in more detail if you want to, Taylor, in just a second. But like it, it's not these beautifully executed possession sequences. It's taking advantage of open space when you can get it, and Canada didn't leave a lot of it in this game.
1: No, and even that goal, and I'm with you that that goal is an example of what happens when you are aggressive in your counter press. you win the ball when the opposition is trying to counter, you you then have openings, you then have spacing. But I will note that the ball that goes into Christian Pulisic, he because of where it's played because of where he is in his position he does have to hold that ball up and i think if mark anthony k doesn't foul him <laughs> that the play sort of stops there and slows down and we see more of what we'd seen of the kind of recycling of possession k does foul him and then mark anthony k stops and a couple of the canadian players If not stop, then very much slow down expecting a call. Advantage is given. The United States, for their part, didn't really stop and had continued to send numbers forward. But this was one of the few times I can remember that the United States just had numbers overlapping, aggressive runs, and more specifically, aggressive runs into the box. And credit to Brendan Aronson for... Obviously starting this play with that win, but then continuing his run forward and getting on the end of a a good cross from Anthony Robinson, who made a good overlapping run. And it was just one of the few moments I saw from the United States where they did get aggressive. They did set numbers forward. They tried to pass. They tried to combine. They, with each pass, made Canada a little more uncertain, opened them up a little bit more, found more opportunities to attack. And then they did. But there is still that moment of like, but they could have held it up. And then if that had happened and Mark anthony K doesn't foul... I don't know if we have as many positives to say about this game. That's fascinating. Taylor, that's a great catch from you. I had not noticed
2: that Canada slowed down a little bit there and that that might have actually helped oh, yeah. the U.S. put the sequence together. That's a great catch from you because it is a lovely sequence, right? The only thing that you could really quibble with is Pfox Fox pass into Pulisic. That first one is is not very good. It's a little bit behind yep. him and he has to slow exactly. up and you, you just yep. mentioned all that stuff. But, man, it's a beautiful sequence. But I go back to it's coming in open space. It's coming in a transition moment where the space is going to be there for you. It's not coming up against a block. And to be honest, that scares me for the U.S.'s perspective coming into this game against Honduras on Wednesday. Because the one thing we know about Honduras and that has been true about Honduras for a while now is that they will sit back and they will concede possession. And they might not execute their block as well as Canada did in this game or as well as the U.S. made it look like Canada did in this game. But they're going to try to compress space and hit you on the counter. And in large part, I thought the U.S.'s transition defense in this game was good. They kept Alfonso Davies at bay for most of this match. They kept the front line at bay for most of this match. But man, I, I don't think we've seen enough from the U.S. in this particular World Cup qualifying window or in many other stretches of the Burhalter tenure. That makes me really optimistic that this team's going to be able to break down Honduras. I mean, just think about that UEFA Nations League semifinal, right? It took a PFAC goal late in the game after he came onto the field off the bench to win it. I think it was a header. I don't remember exactly. But, I mean, it was not a good game for the U.S. in that moment. And and I have concerns about how this team is going to fare headed away to Honduras against a similar type of
1: defensive opponent after this game. All right, let's put a pin in that for now, because uh, I want to go back to uh, the Canada goal, which comes, what, like seven minutes or so after the United States score. We've talked about what the United States did. Again, credit to Brendan Aronson. Good ball from Anthony Robinson. I, I, I do feel this is kind of the old cliche, but that the United States score and the discipline drops a bit and the confidence picks up, but maybe not in a positive way. Because this did seem like a, okay, we scored, everybody's relieved, everybody's relaxed, we really needed that. Uh, I think John Strong in the broadcast said, like, all of America just collectively, like, sighed in relief. But that meant to me that the United States got even looser. And 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 I talked about it earlier, how, how stretched they were and how the back line didn't aggressively step once they cleared. And that, to me, is part and parcel of what we're talking about. That when you get that lead, there wasn't that killer instinct that that we're going to win this game, but we've got to win this game by being smart, by continuing to do the defensive side. Canada now have to come at us. They have to get stretched. They have to try to create something, and more opportunities will present themselves. And instead, it seemed like we continued to be very long, very direct, playing too fast and not kind of going back to even that possession model. And then because of that, Canada are able to exploit... Certain openings, and to John Herdman's credit, I think he makes a substitution immediately after the U.S. scores, and he made more substitutions as the half went on. Burhalter obviously did not, and it, it did feel to me like the U.S. scoring almost made them more vulnerable to to counterattack, and that's exactly how this went down. The momentum shifted real quick, right? It shifted yep. way quicker than it did in the first half against El Salvador.
2: The goal was scored, and yep. it it felt like, okay— Canada realized what needed to happen, and they went out there to make it happen. They had the ball even before the goal sequence started, and you already mentioned Taylor, then they got possession back and recycled it a little bit, and then that's where the goal that Davies kind of keys. It's where that goal comes from with him getting in behind DeAndre Yedlin. I mean, the tides changed really fast, and it didn't feel like the U.S. had, and they never had in this game, really the ability to claw back from a loss of momentum because they'd had the ball and they'd had control in a way, for most of this match. they would had possession. They ha- they dominated in that particular stat, which, as we know, doesn't mean a whole lot on its own. But it felt like when they got punched in the mouth, they didn't have what it takes to actually fight back from that. And that's it's a little bit concerning, especially because I don't think that really lines up with what we've seen over the summer, right, in those two particular finals against Mexico and even in other parts of those tournaments. It wasn't pretty and it wasn't tactically beautiful really ever this summer. But at least in those moments, they had the fight and the grit. And a lot of these are intangibles, and so I struggle to talk about them. But they fought back in those moments, and they they did enough to win. And I guess that might run out at a certain point because it really did feel like that ran out tonight. That's not to say it's going to run out for forever, for the rest of the cycle even. But it it definitely ran out tonight.
1: The player I want to, like... Spotlight for a moment is not a player that was involved in this and have, hasn't been involved in, in active, like top level soccer in a while. It's Didier Drogba. And Didier Drogba is a player that I think of both for club and country, especially for country, that if Ivory Coast are going into a game and they're desperate to get a goal, the player who's going to step up to really motivate that team and lead them was Didier Drogba. And that was the same for Chelsea in his time there. It was the same for Galatasaray when he was there. But, You need that player who, when things aren't going well and you need a response, when you do get punched in the face, as Joe said, you need that person that you rely upon. And for U.S. teams of the past, I think it was maybe Michael Bradley, maybe it was Jermaine Jones, maybe it was Josie Altidore or Clint Dempsey or Landon Donovan. But there have been players that would score that goal when it needed to be scored, that would play that ball in or make something happen or create something from nothing And in both of these games, I kept waiting for someone to cement that status, for someone to recognize, we need to do this. We've got to make a difference. Someone's got to make it happen. And like I thought maybe it was Brendan Aronson winning that ball and scoring the goal. I thought that could be a possibility. I thought maybe this is going to be the game where P-Fox shows with a start that he can do it. And I think at the end of this 180 minutes, I still don't think we have that. I still don't know who that person is who says, this is my team we're going to win. I'm going to make this happen. I thought maybe it was going to be Weston McKinney, but you can't say this is my team. We're going to make this happen. And then also get suspended for COVID protocol uh, violation. Maybe it's Tyler Adams, but can that person be your, your sort of holding midfielder? I don't think so. That's not where Drogba was playing. So That's, I think, one of my biggest concerns is that we just still don't know who that player, who those players are that can step up in those final 10 minutes and you believe they're going to make something happen here. They're going to claw their way into a positive result. I genuinely think... The answer to that question
2: is a combination of Giorena and Christian Pulisic, and I'm really bummed that yeah. we haven't seen them so far together yeah, in this window, and we fair. won't see them in the next game either because Giorena is going back to Dortmund to rehab from that yeah. hamstring injury. So that that's a bummer, right? Because I do think those players are phenomenal, and we haven't seen them together a whole lot yet for the national team, and those guys can change games. I think the execution was poor tonight from the players, just like it was against El Salvador, right? We talked about that somewhere. Passes just not connecting. Weird turnovers. DeAndre the letting the ball out of bounds. Matt Turner doing the same thing in that last game against El Salvador. And maybe those things didn't happen quite as frequently in this particular game, but a lot of them still happened in one way or another, maybe slightly less severely. That said, I still struggle to put this on any particular player or to put it on... Even all of those players that were out there because of all the tactical weirdness and, and the poor game plan, I think, mm-hmm. that we saw from the U.S., so Taylor, I agree with you. I think this team could use a talisman, right? They need someone that will take a game by the scruff of the neck, right? And a lot of these things are cliches, but I think mm-hmm. that would help. Obviously. DDA Drogba Their is a legend. for a reason, is Yeah, what exactly. I would say. Exactly. Yeah. DDA yeah. Drogba is a Phoenix rising legend. I mean, come on, Taylor. It's obvious. <laughs> I, I think this team could use that. It's just hard. <laughs> it's hard because I, I almost think that some of that, for me at least, gets
1: overshadowed when so much of the game plan seems so weird to me. I do appreciate that the Ryan Bailey influence has rubbed off on Joe Lowry. you got to get your local club reference in there somehow. That's right. Uh, Joe, let's let's take one more break. Let's come back and talk about what we would have liked to have seen, what we could still see against Honduras and where the U.S. goes from here.
0: Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep. Courtside seats to an NBA game
1: and more head over to michlobeultra dot com slash to learn more today's episode is brought to you by our old friends Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways like a zero calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach? Well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code T-S-S. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code T-S-S to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. All right, Joe, we're going to try to... All right, I'm going to envision a scenario in which uh, Doc Brown has come back in the DeLorean. Joe, he's going to pick you up (laughs) and he's letting you fly back to... The like maybe a couple hours before this game, you get to go go on that Nashville jog with yes. Greg Berhalter that he went on before this it's one. My dream, and in that conversation, you can say, "Trust me." I, I know how this is going to play out. I know what your game plan is. It's going to finish one-to-one. People are going to be upset. Um What are the things that you feel like he could have done differently? And let's go ahead and start with, would you say make substitutions that aren't injury-related before the 80th minute? Yes, yes. That might be a good starting <laughs> place,
2: Taylor, for this conversation. <laughs> like we said before, the momentum had turned, and the U.S. never really fully got it back, in my yep. view. And a great way to turn momentum or at least to pause momentum is to put new people on the field because it literally takes time away from the game being played. It stops things. It allows your team to take a breath and it puts new blood onto the field. That, Felt like a huge missed opportunity for me that we didn't see the U.S. make those subs earlier on in this game. Yes, they bring on Sergio Dest early because of the injury. Oh, they, they take off Sergio Dest early, excuse yeah. me, because of that injury. But they don't bring players on until much, much, much later in this half. It's Christian Roldan, it's Josh Sargent, and it's Conrad De La Fuente that all come on with less than 10 minutes to go. And I don't think that any one of those players would have changed this game if they'd come on 15 minutes earlier. I I really don't think they would have helped them make a major impact in helping the U.S. create consistent quality chances. But it could have helped them do something. And at that point in the game, the U.S. needed something. And they didn't get that something until, I think, way too late.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because even just from a basic level, you have tired legs, and there's moments when Pulisic, I think in the first half, would have made a run that he wasn't as capable of making in the second, or there would have been better defensive discipline, better tracking on counterattacking opportunities, or defensive uh, like uh counterattacking opportunities that... When you have tired legs, when you don't have that sort of refresh, things start to open up. And yeah, Canada continues to get that confidence. I would also add that it's a triple change in the 80th minute or thereabouts. And again, in my experience, limited as it is, a triple change is disruptive, I guess, to your opponent in that now they've got new people to deal with and maybe a shape change or something like that. But for the team that is making the changes as well, you're changing out 3 of your 10 outfield players, 30% of your team is changing. It takes a few minutes and we've heard tons of stories about like the the greatest players of, of history, Zidane and Maradona and Messi all take time in the beginning to sort of actively remove themselves from the game if anything to see what's happening and then step back into it now that they've kind of had those observations they've gotten a feel for what's going on what the opposition is doing and then they play based on what they've observed if you're sending three people on you need to then give them some time to get acclimated to what's happening to have a read on the game to figure out oh Canada had been in this shape but now they've changed to this one so that means I'm gonna have two people I need to deal with to kind of understand the instructions you've been given just before subbing on and how to implement them, you need time. And even if you can do that quickly, even if it's only five minutes, again, when you're in the 80th minute, now you've got, I think they're with three minutes of added of time, you've got eight minutes to make an impact. And I think you're right, Joe, that I don't know if any one of those individuals would have done it, but I do know that three of them at the same time at that late hour, not going to be this like chemistry changing, oh, we figured it out, we've got this. Because by the time you do start to figure things out, the full time whistle is blowing,
2: yeah, it just doesn't make sense to me i I don't Mm-mm. it's not like the u s had a game changer coming off the bench, but I, I don't know why yep. you wouldn't at least try, and that that like a lot yep. of the the tactical things we've discussed just kind of boggles my mind, and I'm spinning around in in circles in my
1: head trying yeah. to figure it out a very, very very charitable read. I'm aware that I'm being charitable here would be to say that there's an argument that he doesn't want to put Ricardo Pepe on in this moment, in this situation, needing a goal to basically say like, all right, like teenager, like go in there and change the fate of this game in 10 minutes. Maybe if you're Greg Berhalter, you want to hold him out. Let me have a whole game. And then you can try to kind of change it from there with the, with the next game. or maybe you give Pepe an opportunity in that third game. But I, I still think that they could have used him. I still think they could have changed it up. And even if you want to go direct, put two people up top and let him play off of PFOC or let Pefock play off of Pepe and you could get different looks that way. But I think there wasn't that variety to what the United States was doing. And that gets us to like the larger part of the conversation. Joe, I'm once again going to put you in a very, difficult situation here we're we're going back in the time machine as we already have you're still on that run with Berhalter you've said you got to make some changes you've said the your attacking game plan isn't going to work here's what Canada are going to do defensively are there things that you not necessarily would presume to tell Greg Berhalter but with that information Like that Greg Berhalter could have said, "Okay, in that case, we're going to do this. And maybe we could even make it as basic as for people who are relatively new to the game or haven't watched a ton of the national team. When you're playing against a team that is pretty compact on the defensive side, Canada usually sitting in that 5-4-1 sort of shape, oftentimes having all 10 outfield players within 30, 35 yards of their own goal What are ways that you can find some space, you can create opportunities short of shooting from distance and hoping that you just get really accurate? So first I'd say move more off the ball and move off the ball with Mm -hmm. purpose more often because
2: Taylor, you did a great job of detailing how – the, how Canada was able to be pretty static in their defensive shape because the U.S. Mm-hmm. matched up with them really logically. And yep. so if the U.S. do more to pull Canada around and shift them and move them off the ball, not even, not even for the U.S. using possession and using the, the possession of the ball to shift them back and forth, but just having Brendan Aronson make more runs in behind or, or make more runs from out to in to push that left wing back inside more or to push the right wing back inside more for Canada. It happened a couple times. and In those brief moments, it really did free up the ball out uh, out wide from John Brooks because he was the one hitting most of those passes. I think, and this is where my notes let me down, I think that moment where Christian Pulisic has his shot that hits off the post in the 40th minute or thereabouts in the first half for the U.S., That comes from Brooks playing a diagonal over to Sebastian Legette in the right half space. And I believe Brendan Aronson made a driving run inside from out to in that then occupied Canada's left wing back. And I could be getting my sequences mixed up, but it did happen. And in those moments, it made the U.S.'s attack work a lot better. So I'd say move off the ball more. And I also say Mm -hmm. just put more numbers in in between the lines, right? You don't have to go wide every single time. If you are poking more holes in the dam, it's going to make Canada's life harder instead of just poking the same hole with your plastic spoon yeah. that isn't doing a whole lot. Yeah. So those are those are my two biggest things, Taylor, outside of the
1: subs. Yeah, I mean, so there we go. We got three good ones right there. But And, and I'm with you, Joe, because I thought it was going to be we needed more individuality to the attack, which is not a thing we said after El Salvador. We felt like at times it was too individual. And in this game, I kind of thought on the rewatch, if we had done the quick-tick-hot-take, my expectation would have been that the United States were hesitant to take people on they were hesitant to have say serginio dest get really far forward for fear that what happens if you then get caught and now alfonso davies is on the ball with acres of space in front of him on the rewatch there were moments of 1v1s and serginio dest has one where he gets by two canadian players and now There should be a ton of space to attack. He has numbers around him. But again, Canada's shape is very good, and it ends up being a sort of like he plays an incisive ball into Legette. Legette then spreads it wide to I think it's Aronson out there. It might have been Pulisic, but I think it's Aronson. And then Dest, to his credit, I think correctly recognizes that there's an overlap that could be happening right there, and Aronson could easily just kind of play him in down the touchline and maybe Dest gets to it. But if you freeze frame it there and look at the numbers, there is everybody uh, like 1v1 man marked with Canada having a free defender. So even there, when the 1v1s do come off and Dest does take two players out of, the- out of the equation, Canada still had the numbers around the ball that they needed to limit anything the U.S. wanted to do. And so, Joe, I think you're absolutely right. It goes back to you just need a, a-, a lot more movement. You can't have people stretching the back line but then someone else is dropping in and someone else has gone wide but somebody else has come central and it goes back to the El Salvador game of feeling like the attacking game plan at times was two or three different approaches at once and nobody bridging that divide or those multiple divides and so in the end It, it, it felt like there wasn't a like, okay, this is clearly what they were trying to do and it wasn't working. So then they tried this and that didn't work. So then they tried this. It felt like it was like, well, here they would go long, but then they went diagonal here, but then they did have possession for like four minutes, but then they had a shot from distance. And it it just felt very varied to me. And I think more consistency and cohesiveness could only have been a positive.
2: Yeah, I'm with you. I mean, there's there's a plethora right. of issues with how the US mm-hmm. approached this game in the attack. There are issues with how the personnel is suited to fit in with what Beralt's overall vision, you know, the, the vision that he's communicated to us, not that we've necessarily seen that a whole lot yet. There are yeah, there's a lot there's a lot of negative stuff from this game. The one positive that I've got doesn't really relate to this particular match, but It's the fact that the rest of CONCACAF isn't really separating itself in this this particular World Cup qualifying window. Mexico's on six points at the moment, and Panama's on four after a win tonight as we're recording on Sunday evening. Canada, Honduras, the U.S., El Salvador are all on two points. So that's spot three through spot six in the OCHO. I'm using the OCHO, Taylor, because I'm reading the standings. Then the bottom two, it's Costa Rica on one (laughs) and Jamaica (laughs) on zero. They've lost both of their games. So, like, overall, big picture— The U.S. still has every shot to qualify after these two disappointing results. It just, it's not encouraging. The pressure is building game by game, window by window, and they're making their lives harder than they need to be.
1: Let's let's keep going with some positives though, because I don't think there were many, but there were a few for me. Uh one, Felipe Cardenas, uh of the Athletic, uh tweeted this that basically that right center back spot is now Miles Robinson's and it seems unlikely he's gonna let it slip. And I would agree. I thought once again he had a really good game. I, I don't remember him. I'm sure he had like a misplaced pass or like a failure to control the ball. But for the most part, I don't remember him doing anything obviously wrong standing out in that way. Instead, I just remember him being reliable and consistent. Uh Maybe, like I said, like a yard or a step too deep uh, on what ended up being the equalizer for Canada. But even there, lots of other things going wrong along the way. So I do think Miles Robinson has been a positive. And I think Matt Turner... Did enough to make me feel better after a sort of uneven performance against El Salvador. Not even a bad one, just those moments of fell into control of back pass and just looking nervous. I think he did have a game where he was uncomfortable or just, again, nerves got to him in that first World Cup qualifying game. Here, I feel like we saw more of what we want from him. He commands the box, he wins things in the air. There were times when he came out for something, and I thought, oh, no, he's going to bobble this. There's too many players around him. There's too much congestion. This could be a chance when he comes out, he thinks he's got it, he drops it, and now Canada are ahead one nil or 2-1, to depending on when the game was happening. And I didn't see that from him. So I thought it was, it was a much more solid game for Matt Turner, and I thought it continued to be a solid performance for Miles Robinson. And even
2: for I, I completely agree with Miles Robinson. I thought his defending through these first two games has been maybe the biggest positive for the U.S. in general. Maybe outside of Giorena's performance against El Salvador, he's been great defensively. He's been great in counter pressure. He's been really good tracking back and dealing with attackers running through in on goal for the U.S. I think he's been awesome. Matt Turner Taylor, I don't think he's done anything really that would change what we thought about him coming into this camp. Right. I, I think he is probably the best goalkeeper that the U.S. has. He's certainly the best shot stopper that the U.S. has. I love that moment where well, I don't love the moment, but I love the the save he sort of makes when Alfonso Davies gets in behind oh, yeah. Serginho Dest and, and Davies gets the ball and he cuts it back, I believe, for Kyle Aaron, who shoots it And the ball is going wide. It's always going wide from Laren. But Turner can't see that. And he still does enough to throw his hand up. I believe it's his right hand up and parry it even wider than it already was. And you can just see how quick his reactions are in moments like that. He is a brilliant shot stopper. And we are seeing bits and pieces of that as we continue to see him in red, white, and blue. So I I thought Matt Turner was good. Dest, man, I I thought he bounced back really well. I know I just gave that one moment where he kind of got uh, I don't know, blown by, by Alfonso Davies and, and maybe doesn't show a lot of defensive awareness. But overall, I think he, he actually entered into challenges, won the ball, looked like a capable defender that we have seen him be at times for Barcelona. He is not always a train wreck at that spot. He just is a train wreck there defensively more often than <laughs> the US would like. So it was a shame I, for me that he had to leave this game early because I thought he was bouncing back very nicely. One other positive. I already mentioned Pulisic. I thought, I thought Pifak was solid up top, not perfect but good enough to make me want to see him again against Honduras. Um, if if there's no one really in this particular group of forwards that brings yeah. a majorly different skill set like a Jesus Ferreira, it, I mean Sargent and, and Pifak and Pepe are all a little bit different but not drastically different. I, I'd like to see Pifak again. I thought he brought more to this game than Sargent brought to the El Salvador game, and I, I think he can help contribute with some of those uglier attacking moments where you are just lumping yeah. the ball into the box at a level that Sargent and Pepe just can't yet.
1: Yeah, I think I don't disagree with you, but I will say that it is representative of how big of a problem that number nine spot is that like Pivak didn't really stand out to me one way or the other. I thought he did some good hold up play. I thought some of his passing was poor, but I'm with you that it's like, I mean, I guess it was fine. I guess it was good (laughs) in the grand scheme of things. Like we still don't have anybody saying that is my job. That is my spot. I am. I am the starting number nine now. Come and try to take it from me. And even when Josh Sargent comes on, I've already talked about how he doesn't have that much time to bet in, but it's not like he comes in and makes a massive difference. I am now at the point where I'm like, roll the dice with Pepe. Why not? Start him in a must-win World Cup qualifier away from home in traditionally very hostile ground, just ask Timmy Chandler. like it, it, It does seem like an area that I don't know how to improve as quickly as the United States obviously needs it to improve, So maybe we go back to that, like, just put a bunch of mobile attackers up front and let them all interchange and move around. And that's a way that you could open up compact defenses, because that's what we're going to be getting against Honduras. Uh, Joe, two names for you, because I don't have a ton of notes about them. Anthony Robinson, Kevin Acosta. Any thoughts on either of them? Anthony Robinson, obviously getting the assist. And I thought, I get like similar to a couple other people, like didn't stand out in a negative way. And on the evening, that means it was a positive performance in my book.
2: Yeah, I'm with you on Robinson. I liked some of his overlaps. I liked some of the balls he was putting into the box. I'd like to see him again against Honduras. Mm -hmm. He wasn't flawless defensively, but I thought he was overall good enough. Acosta, man, I guess this is not the perfect game for Kellen Acosta, right? You want him in a Mexico type of game where you really are having to cover a lot of ground more consistently not just in transition defense you have to cover ground almost all the time in your defensive shape and your shifting because I think when Acosta's covering ground defensively more consistently that's when he's at his best and we didn't really see that tonight so the game didn't suit Acosta in my view and I don't think he he really shined much he didn't get in between the lines he didn't drop deep and and pull strings in the attack which I don't think anybody really expects him to so kind of a, a bland game from Acosta which is really how I feel about Legette it's kind of how I feel about about Aronson outside of some of those defensive moments, and I think it applies to a lot of these outfield players for the U.S.
1: Where are you on Tyler Adams' performance? Uh, good defensively, covered
2: ground, not 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 flawless. Again, he loses mm-hmm. more of those 50-50 balls than I I hoped he would, and that goes back to the El Salvador game as well. But he was good. He covers ground. He slides over and helps with that Alfonso Davies drive down the left side in the eighth minute or the ninth minute early on in this game. He cuts out some passes. He sees the game very quickly. The one thing that I said I was going to pay attention to about Tyler Adams, though, headed into this window was how has his passing improved? And I think the answer, at least mm-hmm. at national team level, is it hasn't. And again, because of the issues going on in front of him in yep. this game, maybe the the pieces weren't really – maybe the foundation wasn't really there for him to shine and, and shine with his passing. But even so, I don't think he looks comfortable on the ball, and, and that hasn't changed for me over the last few years of
1: watching him with the U.S. All right. Any other individual performances that we should talk about?
2: Yeah, I I just thought Pulisic was good, man. At least he Mm -hmm. brought something and the U.S. needed that something. And I've kind of already mentioned that, but I wanted to bookend it with our individual player conversation because he's bright and the U.S. is better when he's in this team.
1: Uh, And we are going to talk about one more person related to the U.S. national team. I do want to take another second. We haven't talked about them as much because we tend to be a very U.S.-centric show. But we haven't given a ton of credit to Canada other than to say that this was a deserved draw. And I think there's an argument that they even deserved a win based on some of the chances they had. But it was a a team that understood the game plan. And I, I do think it is easier... I I await your your letters and your tweets (laughs) to set up to be defensive and to be more sort of reactive than it is to drill and set up a system to play through that. So with that said, I thought everybody on Canada essentially did exactly what they needed to do. And then they relied on those big performers. They do have those people that you could look to 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 sort of we need a result. Alfonso Davies, go do something. That's exactly what happened here. So. I mean, really, the whole team I thought was pretty excellent for for what they were doing and how they were executing their game plan. Joe, uh, anybody from Canada, aside from Alfonso Davies, that you wanted to spotlight?
2: Uh... I liked I liked the energy that Tejon Buchanan brought off the bench on that right side, yeah. and he yeah. he was dangerous. He dusted John Brooks in the second half, which is not mm-hmm. all that hard to do. We, we know that already from watching him in the Bundesliga and in the past with the U.S., but Tejan Buchanan's yeah. defensively, he's not there yet, but with the ball, he is bright and is just another one of these really dangerous Canadian attackers. Jonathan David didn't even start this game, and he is probably the best striker. I mean, Kyle Aaron's been very, very good for Canada, but Jonathan David's probably the highest upside striker if he's not already the best striker. The depth here is real for Canada. And they're a suspect at the back. I thought Scott Kennedy was poor in this game. And he had a couple of suspect defensive moments, but he comes out and Kamal Miller comes in, a player who I rate much higher than Scott Kennedy. There's talent here. And I hope we see Canada at Qatar. I hope we see them in 2022 because they can, they can actually open up a little bit and play or they can sit deeper and, and try to cover up some of their own defensive vulnerabilities like they did tonight. They're a fun team to watch, man. If you can separate that, uh, you know, wanting the U.S. to be better at soccer thing that I think you and I both have, if you can take that trade away yeah. and just subdue it
1: for a minute, Canada is a fun team to watch, and and we saw that tonight. And we also saw the importance of substitutions there, as Joe mentioned. And I think we should give uh, some credit to John Herdman and whoever John Herdman was talking to in his earbud. Absolutely. Because they clearly had somebody up high looking at this game and how it evolved tactically, and I think there was a ton of conversation between those two. But I thought he got his subs right, I thought he got his tactics right, and well done to Canada Greg Berhalter, we have talked about not getting his tactics right, not really setting this team up well. I have seen, as Twitter want to do, a lot of uh, (laughs) Twitter being very frustrated by this, some calling for him to be fired. I do think there are the people who have long been fire Berhalter waiting to come out of the woodwork, and now they have their chance. But I think there are other people who have been on the fence or have been maybe a little bit more pro-Greg Berhalter who are now saying this doesn't seem to be working or outright saying he needs to go. I am not one of those people— Joe, before I get into my kind of feelings on that, where are you on Greg Berhalter? Are you Berhalter out or in? I'm Berhalter in, but the leash is getting shorter and shorter, right?
2: It has yep. to be getting yep. shorter and shorter. He will be coaching for his job at some point over the course of this World Cup mm-hmm. qualifying cycle. I don't know when that point is, and I'm thankful I don't have to make that decision. But yep. we want – I mean we we should be expecting to see this U.S. team make progress and they haven't made a lot of tactical progress in the ways that I think I was hoping they would. So yeah, yeah. the leash is getting shorter. And, and Taylor, I'm guessing you're in a pretty similar
1: spot. Yeah, I absolutely am. And I saw plenty of people pointing out that Jurgen Klinsmann lost the first two games of World Cup qualifying last time round. Like, is two points that much better? I mean, time will tell. But I will, I will point out that Jurgen Klinsmann had a lot of other stuff happening leading into world cup qualifying that we had lost the gold cup. We then lost the CONCACAF championship in the middle of that. He has the falling out with Fabian Johnson and publicly criticizes him It's say a manager who axed Landon Donovan without telling him why, without giving him notice. And I think had built up a lot of clicks in the locker room and there was a lot of tension with that national team. And I think it was sort of, it just spilled over onto the pitch and, and he needed to go I don't feel like that is the case with Greg Berhalter. I don't feel like he's lost the team. I saw that Christian Pulisic quote about how, like, we need to get better attacking ideas. And I I am of the mind that that is a young player expressing frustration for the lack of opportunities, less so for him saying, like, Berhalter's not coaching this team well. Um Maybe that's me being charitable. Maybe that's just me remembering that I, I was impressed by what I saw from the U.S. this summer. I will also say that, yes, the leash is getting shorter. But if you sack him, you have to bring somebody in, and you're doing so in the middle of qualifying. They don't have all the time Burhalter has had to sort of assemble his pool, figure out his strongest team, build the tactics such as they are at present. And so I go back to when uh, Irgen Clinton was sacked in 2018 qualifying. And Bruce Arena coming in, we know now, did not work. But I remember at the time, my criticisms of, of Klinsman being that he didn't set the team up with any tactics, that it was a lot of vibes and go out there and have fun and try to make something happen. And we saw the impact of Bruce Arena when he came in. And there was more discipline. There were more tactics. It was a pretty clear draw away, win at home, will eventually get to the World Cup. And that doesn't end up happening. I'm not saying let's hire Bruce Arena. What I'm saying is that when Klinsman was sacked, there was an obvious person to come in and take over. And though there were some concerns, and I'm not trying to say that everybody 100% agreed it was Bruce Arena, the Arena appointment made a lot of sense for what he had been able to do for the U.S. and what he had been able to do in Major League Soccer. I don't think we have that person this time, and we certainly don't have a person that the collective whole is going to agree is better than keeping Berhalter and seeing if he can figure things out. There's an argument that we're only two games in. We can still change it and there's time to get a response. But I don't think we've reached that point. I don't think the squad is disorganized or or like the harmony is gone. I don't think that there are major questions around, does he even know how to set up a team tactically? Does he have any interest in doing that? He hasn't ostracized key players. So I back Berhalter to stick, to figure it out, to get results and for this to be a learning experience. And by the end, we qualify easily and nobody's concerned, but I also don't really feel that confident about things. (laughs) And I think that there's a very realistic possibility. We don't get a win against Honduras. We start world cup qualifying with three points from three games. And even if there's that ends up being enough, or even if the U S turns it around, that is my bar for good for what a good result would be was seven points from these three games. Can't do that now. So now we're looking at, like, an okay start, I guess, would be five points. And three points, not good at all. Uh, And then maybe we're having a very different conversation about Greg Berhalter. But I I think a lot of it just goes back to me, Joe, for, like, I didn't see – a ton of adjustment, a ton of in-game tinkering, the Pochettino, I'm going to make a change in the 30th minute and then a change at halftime and then a change in the 60th minute to keep our momentum and to keep the opponent having to react to what we're doing. And I just wish we had seen more of that tonight. I think any sort of change, any sort of aggressive change from Burhalter would have been meaningful to me and hopefully significant to the overall result. I've talked for about like eight minutes straight, I think, Joe. I'm going to turn it over to you while I catch my breath
2: i just like to think that somewhere in the city of Los Angeles, uh, there is a Bob Bradley sitting in a, uh, I don't know, in, in some sort of cool looking chair with a bearskin rug at his feet, shaving his head, and he's just cracked a smile, a slight smile at what's going on because he could be the guy that comes in. I don't know. I don't, I don't know anything. I don't think that's terribly realistic, but you're right. There aren't a lot of other options here other than a, a a Bob Bradley type guy. It's still too early for me to be having this, this conversation about who the replacement is. I think it's too early for both of us, but we both do acknowledge that, you know, the product on the field over these last two games, certainly at other times previously in the Bralter tenure has not been particularly good. And there are real issues there that need to be resolved. And, Hopefully we see some of those resolved on Wednesday.
1: Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think that's what it comes down to is we can talk about what we think could have happened, what we think could have worked, what we'd like to see him try. But it, it is inevitably going to come back to who does he set out out of that pitch with what instructions and what is that final result? And until then, it's all coulda, woulda, shoulda. If they come away with a win on Wednesday, I think you and I feel better, but still have some concerns. And obviously there are still questions about the roster and the depth of the pool, but uh, short of a win, Joe, I, I, I'm again, I'm not even going to say Berhalter definitely out. I think we have to see what the players say once they leave international break. And we have to get an idea of what he is feeling. I still haven't seen quotes from him about this match or significant quotes from that press conference, but I am now kind of, yeah, getting to that point of I, it felt like we had, some pretty clear – if you and I needed to do a 15-minute conversation about what are the – fundamental aspects of this Berhalter system, how has it evolved? We could have done that. We could have talked about how they used to do the four-four-two mid-block and that doesn't work and they've changed to this, how they've experimented with single pivot, double pivot, how they've experimented with a back three versus a back four and and people having different responsibilities and roles within that and how there's been a growth towards, okay, we're going to have those wide attackers become more narrow and sometimes they're going to drop in and be almost secondary central midfielders. Like there are things there that we've identified and I'm always about if what we're identifying feels logical and linear and is building towards a style of play that gets results or at least consistently puts the opponent on their heels and forces them to throw things at you to throw you off, we're not really getting that. And, and, and so that I think is the hardest thing for me to get my head around is why this felt like we were building towards – Positive results and a kind of positive idea about how we want to play. And there are plenty of people who will say, no, it was always just we got fortunate results and we never had a style or a system. I don't buy into that, but I do think we're now in a place where we have, with each game so far of qualifying, we have had more questions than we had going in. And that is not what's supposed to be happening.
2: Yeah. I don't, I don't really have a whole lot to add to that, Taylor yep. Rockwell. I think that is a fair All summary right. of where we're
1: at, which is not the best place to be. Yeah. No, it's not. But we talked about some positives. We talked it out a little bit. And Joe, going back to the very beginning of this conversation with the idea that like you hadn't gotten to sort of break a game down watching it again and then talking it out. I don't know if, if you feel better, but I'll speak for myself and say that I think we talked through some stuff that I needed to try to kind of figure out and verbalize, especially about what didn't work and what might have been better.
2: Yeah, I feel really good about the analysis that we did. I guess now we're just like <laughs> patting ourselves on the back. There's a lot of... Yeah. Of questions about, you know, Christian Pulisic had a quote about, you know, we need new ideas. And I think this conversation and having gone back through and watched the game again got more specific about that. That's one thing that really bugs mm-hmm. me in soccer when when commentators just say yes. they lack ideas. Well, what does that mean? Like your job is to tell yeah. us as the viewers what that is. And Christian Pulisic's job is not necessarily to intuit what those new ideas should be. That is more Greg Berhalter's job, I feel. But I think mm-hmm. just you and I having this conversation has helped us both come to terms and hopefully help listeners understand maybe what some of those new ideas need to be. So
1: we, we cut through some of the vagueness, got specific, <laughs> and I at least I appreciate yeah. that. All right. That makes me happy, Joe. Uh, you make me happy. Your analysis makes me happy chatting it out with you, even at a late, late hour. <laughs> We're now Monday morning. That also makes me happy. Joe Lowry, thank you very much for taking all the time to watch, rewatch, and then talk out the USA's one-to-one draw with Canada. You got it, Taylor. Now go get some sleep, man. I shall do my best. (laughs) Listeners, do the same, and we will talk to you many more times this week, including after the United States resoundingly defeats Honduras on the road and everything feels better. But until then, thank you so much for listening, and we'll talk to you all again soon.